Hello and welcome back. You're listening to the ACAP Coffee Break with Meg Murray, a podcast from the Association for Community Affiliated Plans. Thanks for listening. Our guest today is Haney Abdullal, president of VNSNY Choice Health Plans of New York. Here's Meg. Welcome to the ACAP Coffee Break podcast. For this session, we are going to be in- introducing Haney Abdullah, who is the CEO of VNS Choice and also an ACAP board member. He leads our work on Medicare and MLTSS and has been a longtime member of ACAP. And so we're looking forward to hearing from him about his journey and how he's led his plan through this terrible time over the last year. Um, so I'll just start off with Haney and ask you, Haney, why did you get into healthcare to begin with? Thank you, Meg, um, and thank you for the opportunity. Um, it's an interesting question. So I got into healthcare. You know, when you go through your life and you know you're trying to decide about where you're going to lead and go into in college and pick majors, um, I was sort of a science buff. Really liked the sciences and um, saw myself in in that aspect of you know the workforce. Honestly, when I look back, it's um, I wanted to do something with my career that had some meaning and um, it wasn't just about, you know, making money and making a lifestyle. Um, I wanted to really have an impact on other people's lives. And regardless um, of how I went into that, um, I was going to choose something in the sciences. What's interesting is, is that you know, when I first started out, I was going into the sort of research field. And after I graduated college, um, I did my master's in biology and um, the field of immunology and uh, genetics and um, tried that for a year. I got into it. And as soon as I got into it, I started doing research as, you know, a researcher. And one of the topics that um, I was focused in on was, and this is before all the drugs came out for cholesterol, was finding anti-colonesterase in actinomyces, which is this bacteria. (laughs) And while I went through it, what I found was that these researchers, and I admire them, um, they spend their whole entire lives, maybe five to 10 years, and maybe one in a million will have that opportunity to find that breakthrough research or that breakthrough drug or something that'll impact lives. And I just thought, I don't know if I could do this for 10 years and come up with a study that will end up saying it didn't work out. Um, That's what really pushed me into medical school. And I decided I wanna have a real impact. I wanna see the impact. I wanna be able to touch people and not be in the lab. Um, That's what made me go into uh, medical school and uh, decide to become a doctor um, through there, so. And what is your specialty? So, Another great question. Um, I'm internal medicine, primary care. And I'll tell you a little bit why I chose that. So I tell the story. um, I was an attending in a hospital and we have residents and we have fellows. And um, 
when you go through as a medical student, you go through all the different fields and the different aspects of, you know, medicine, and you try and figure out what do you want to do with the rest of your life? And to me, primary care was just one of the best fields because you got to meet, you got to interview, and people would come in not knowing what they had, and there would be the, this whole investigative process of trying to figure it out. And what I found was the subspecialties were sort of fragmented. You got a consult, you sent them to that consult, the consultant could be a GI doctor, kidney doctor, neurologist, and they would write up their consult and say, it's not this. And then they would send you back. Um, and that to me didn't fulfill why I went into medicine. It was about helping people and really trying to get them to navigate and treat the uh, illnesses that they had and make their lives better. And to me, just having a simple answer, and again, no offense to the specialists out there, it's what lots of people do and we need all of these specialists, but it's sort of segmented. You don't get the whole picture or the entire picture. You don't get to interview the member and know about their family and have that sort of long-term connection that you have with people. You get to know their family, you get to know their lives, you learn a little bit about their home environment and really try and address the challenges, the disparities or the barriers uh, for them to getting to care. And it's not always medical and it's not always a drug that will solve a problem. So uh, my degree is in uh, osteopathy. I'm a doctor, I'm a DO and that whole holistic picture of looking at people with a general view and not retreating to uh, medicines and therapeutics, trying to figure out really, you know, how the behavioral, um, their mind, how they think, and what the challenges are um, in overcoming those challenges was something that really pushed me towards uh, my career. The, the issue of whole person care, which is what you're alluding to, is really one of the hallmarks of the ACAP plans, and especially a plan like yours that covers dual eligibles, both for acute care and long-term care. Can you talk about the work that your plan has done this year during COVID, trying to address the whole person needs of your population, which is so frail, and, and you're, you, because you're in New York City, we didn't really say that, but that's where you are. Um, I know you were one of the first plans um, hit. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the plan's background and then how that impacted um, your work on COVID this year? Yeah, so um, I've been working at Visiting Nurse Services of New York for the past nine years. And the organization, for those of you who aren't aware of the organization, it's one of the oldest home care agencies and our founder started home care, um, Lillian Wald. And the organization has lots of products that we serve. So. Um, we are one of the largest home care agencies. We have one of the largest hospice. We have behavioral health. And then we also have a licensed home care agencies that has over 10,000 home health aides. So our employees were about 12 to 13,000 employees when you include the home health aides that, um, that we employ. So the organization is built 
on the fabric of being in the home and delivering care in the home um, to vulnerable uh, residents of New York State. And that really is the key of the mission. It's helping people who can't help themselves. So when you tie it back to sort of how I chose my career, um, there's a bridge that gets me over to the, um, the managed care side. And usually clinicians' reactions to um, you went over to the dark side, quote unquote, with managed care. They don't understand managed care. And sometimes the two worlds are talking different languages and they really don't understand the goals of each of, you know, the worlds that we live in because sometimes we're so isolated in that world, whether we're working in a hospital, whether outpatient and um, understanding sort of the managed care principles. But I believe that managed care and being a part of the ACAP plans for so long, the work that we do is tremendous. And it covers millions of lives, right? ACAP covers over 15 million, 20, <laughs> 20 million lives. Um, I couldn't do that in an office. I couldn't do that in a hospital. Um, you know, to make one change, let's say, on a formulary or to get somebody an added benefit or something like social determinants of health or trying to over overcome those challenges is not something that's easily done in a clinic or an office. You sort of have to deal with the realm that you have. And that, to me, when we look at the organization as a whole, having the payer side and the provider side and bridging those two worlds together, I think is sort of the secret sauce of what the future of healthcare um, is like. And we need to stop talking over each other or against each other, or even saying that, you know, that moving over to the dark side, there, there really isn't a dark side. There's one side. And that one side is our goal is to get members the health and the care that they need. So when we talk about COVID, you couldn't think or dream of a crisis like this pandemic that we encountered. And I know I've been on several calls before where we've talked about um, learnings and We've asked the assistance for ACAP to help us with PPE, but it's almost a year and sometimes we forget the beginning moments. And in those beginning moments, it was this invisible virus that was new. No one knew how it spread. No one knew how it reacted. All we knew is, is that it was spreading and it was spreading fast and it was spreading around the world. And sort of our reaction to that, um, we do operate, manage long-term care services and supports, and we're one of the largest in New York State, and we have over 21,000 members who depend on us on a daily basis for their activities of daily living. I'd like to stop there for a second because, you know, when 
clinicians and healthcare professionals talk about ADLs. I don't know if people realize the background of ADLs. ADLs means we assist people in preparing food. We assist people in giving them food. We assist people in getting them to the bathroom. We exist, we exist to help people get dressed. So when you talk about a pandemic that is just about to affect every employee, people are scared and we have a workforce that's out there that's at risk, right? Because everybody stayed home, but those essential workers couldn't stay home. And we had to make sure that whether the supply chain was going to go down, whether people wouldn't get their diapers. I, I know diapers might not be something that everyone thinks is critical, but it is. <laughs> you know, oxygen is critical. Um, getting their meds or having somebody assist them to take their medications is critical. So it was really a daunting and overwhelming crisis that we were facing because we had to make sure not only that our members were protected, but our employees were also protected because we were sending, sending them in on the front line. And, you know, if I can compare it to a war, um, they didn't have the tanks. They didn't have the protection. They didn't have the uniforms. They didn't have the PPE that they needed in the beginning of that. So we immediately like went into hyperdrive and made sure first and foremost that we reviewed all of our members and made sure that they had somebody in the home to help them out to cover those ADLs because the whole dynamic changed. What was true in February wasn't true in March. We had home health aides that weren't going to work. We had members who had caregivers that were left isolated because they weren't being taken care of. So we needed to make sure that all of our members are covered with ADL. So that was really our first thing. The second thing that we did was we needed to make sure that people had enough supplies to last them for at least 90 days. So we sent them all of their oxygen, again, not knowing if the mail was gonna shut down, <laughs> if deliveries were going to get shut down, if, you know, they were going to be able to go out and shop, you know, going back to March, remember how the, uh, the food and, you know, people stormed the stores and all the uh, stores were empty. We also made sure that people had food in order to survive. So whether it was home delivery or whether it was assistance from home health aides, or it was, caregivers who are now working at home and could cover um, those areas. But the biggest drive was really to protect our members and protect our employees. Um, unlike other organizations and because of our unique provider and payer side, um, this hit home for us, not only because we were New York and we were the first, we had members who were infected and we were trying to figure out who was infected and how to keep them and how to protect the employees that were going into their homes. And then the second issue that we had was our employees. 
And I'm sad to say that, you know, the pandemic hit everybody and it hit us hard where we lost um, 13 of our employees. So some of us couldn't stay home and be protected um, during that time. And of course, you know, the disease is out there um, for all reasons, but that that really hit home for us. And, you know, every decision we made focused in on how do we protect and get the necessary protection that we needed. We went to the city, we went to the state, we went to the federal government. And if you recall, Meg, we even reached out to you for assistance from other states, right? Because New York was the first and everybody was sort of sitting and watching and not really um, showing the signs of the spread during that time. And the numbers that we showed, you know, I know we're looking at huge numbers right now and it's spread all across the nation and all across the world, but they were in the hundreds to thousands. Um, in March, April, and May, um, we lost almost 1,200 of our members. Wow. And these are the members of the plan. The members of the plan. And you only have 21,000. Yeah. Um, so this hit home. Mm-hmm. You know, just imagine even our care managers who had to deal with the grief and trying to help out um, the other 20,000 members who were there. So that to me is the focus of our drive. And, you know, when we're looking at the, um, the light at the end of the tunnel, right, the vaccine, again, we want to make sure that people don't lose track of the managed long-term care people and the people who are vul- vulnerable in the community very concerned about how are homebound people going to get the vaccine and and you're trying to raise that as an issue nationally. So can you talk about how you're working with the state to make sure those people are vaccinated that maybe can't get out of their home, even with support? Yeah. So we've raised it with the state and the state is aware and, you know, the state is going through right now, the concerns of just getting the vaccine to people who can or want the vaccine. You know, we haven't addressed the people who aren't who are sort of weary of that. And we're also trying to address that. So in the meantime, we're talking to our members, trying to figure out if they want the vaccine or not. What we're also doing is focusing in on the truly, truly homebound, right? So yes, Managed Long-Term Care Services and Supports has a nursing home equivalent, but lots of our members with transportation can go to their doctors, can go to pharmacies, But then there are the truly homebound that can't get out and don't have caregiver support. And that to me is our biggest concern right now. How do we get the vaccine to their home? Um, And it's an issue that we've raised here and we're raising all over that we need to make sure that we can get those vaccines um, to people's houses for them. Because they are at the highest and the highest. If there was a phase one and, or a, a prior to phase one, they should be in that list. Uh, right now, the vaccines, right? The Pfizer vaccine, there's storage issues and uh, freezing issues. So that vaccine 
is not really the best for transporting and will not be able to transport from home to home and, and deal with the logistics. Moderna has a little bit of that, but again, the logistics of that and trying to get the Moderna vaccine and opening it in a freezer and using up as many vaccines as we can in the home environment is a little bit more difficult. So we're hopeful for the new vaccines that are about to come out. Um, we're looking towards the Johnson & Johnson, but what we don't want, Meg, is, is that the vaccine comes out and there isn't a plan. And our goal, you know, as a health plan and as a provider and as an association is to make sure we plan for that because they need to get that vaccine as soon as it's available. I know some of our plans are already starting and you probably are too, to talk to some of the um, transportation providers and seeing how they can work with nurses and others to um, get the vaccines to those folks. So we'll continue to talk to you about it and, and spread the word about what you're doing and what other plans are doing to make sure those people who are so vulnerable, as you said, um, get the vaccine as soon as they can. So you have a pretty tough job, Haney, with the things we didn't even talk about your work on Hurricane Sandy and all of that kind of stuff before. I know that that probably prepped you for some of the work you're doing now. But um, for you, we, we we always wrap up these podcasts asking about what book is are, are our CEOs reading, and sometimes it's to relax, um, and sometimes it's to give them inspiration or or more knowledge. So what's on your um, nightstand uh, helping you during this time? So I have to tell you, the nightstand is full of um, government policies, legislation, um, and budget items in order to continue sort of the goal and our mission. Um, what I do like to do, and, you know, I, I think it's sort of um, an escape sometimes from the pandemic is you know, catching up on some of the key Netflix shows and just trying to um, take some downtime uh, from this because there is so much work to do um, regarding, you know, what we have to achieve. You know, I, I admire um, the new administration um, and how they sort of posed the pandemic. Um, and I think sometimes because it's invisible, Meg, that people forget that we're almost like in a wartime zone. You know, when people bring up that we've lost more people to COVID than in World War II and the wars, um, it's sort of how we have to address it. So I don't mean to be facetious or anything like that about reading a book. This is a full-time job. I mean, we wake up, we sleep, we think about this on an every minute basis, you know, whether it's vaccine administration, our organization has put together sort of a vaccine hub in our own corporate area to make sure our member, our employees get vaccinated. Um, so we've been setting that up and we've been volunteering and we have vaccinators and we have administrators. And, you know, I'm proud to say that our organization put that together in less than three weeks. Um, and we're proud of vaccinating over 2000 employees over the past two weeks. So um, 
I kind of sleep, dream, wake up with this pandemic. And I, I think that's the attention that it needs. Um, I can't go to bed having another 1400 members or, you know, um, that on my mind. So um, right. well, we're in it. You're saying almost 5%, you lost almost 5% of your membership. That's a terrible. Yeah. So um, 13 staff people. Yeah. So it sits on our, it sits on everyone's mind and, you know, that is the primary goal. But like I said, it's not like I don't have fun, but um, my one escape is just trying to watch a comedy show or watch a series that has nothing to do with pandemics. Well, good. Well, we appreciate the work that you're doing and the leadership you've given in ACAP on these issues and we'll continue to work together to make sure that especially that those homebound people get the vaccine that they need. So thank you, Heen. Thank you, Meg. And thank you for allowing me the time to speak here to you today. I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, most of all, thank you for the work that ACAP does. Um, It is such a great organization. I'm proud to be a part of the organization, you know, and, you know, just like the, uh, participants and the members of ACAP, you carry that mission, you know, and you stand for um, speaking for those who can't speak for themselves. So it's really nice to be a part of a group and an organization that feels the same way um, as we do. Thanks for listening. You can find book recommendations on our Goodreads bookshelf. Find the link in the description of this podcast. Don't miss an episode. You can find and subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And when you do, give us a shout on Twitter using the hashtag ACAPCoffeeBreak. We'll put you in a drawing for a Starbucks gift card so the next time you tune in, your coffee's on us. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.